If you have a Bible, let's get into Romans chapter 10 tonight. Uh, we are going to get into a really, really good chapter of the Bible. Uh, this is probably one of the chapters that you, uh, you know more than you might realize. I- I'm sure there are at least two or three verses that you can quote from this chapter. You might not know chapter and verse, how to cite them, but you probably could once you see them and hear them, you'll probably think, well, yeah, I know that verse, and you might have not knew it was from here, but you heard it before. So uh, Romans 10 is going to be a good one. Now, if we've learned anything from our study in Romans so far, it's that this book is incredibly important to the Christian faith. Every book is important to the Christian faith, but Romans, we have made, I've made this very clear. I've tried to make this very clear. Romans is a top shelf book. You might put another book there, John, uh, uh, Acts, uh, Old Testament, uh, you might have your favorites, but Romans Romans has got to be on the top shelf. If you were to separate all these books and say which one's the most important, Romans has got to be right up there. So um, more importantly, uh, or more importantly, Romans is really the foundation for our theology. Theology is the study of God. Uh, theology, particularly in the Christian sense, is the study of Jesus, the study of God's relationship with us and how we can have a relationship with him. Uh, you, you've heard that word theology before. Uh, Romans is really, uh, if you pick up a theology book or a systematic theology, theology book, uh, 80% of its contents are derived from the book of Romans, and the rest of the Bible gives the other 20. Uh, Romans is so important. Our theology is rooted in and detailed in this book alone. And the reason why I think, uh, another reason why Romans is so important that we don't talk about enough is Paul quotes so much Old Testament in this book. When Paul is writing Romans, he is pulling from Genesis. He's pulling from Isaiah. He's pulling from Psalms. He's pulling from Habakkuk. He is pulling from all the Old Testament book, prophets, law, uh, poetry, and he's showing us how all the Old Testament pointed to Jesus' Christianity, and he's writing a book about uh, how we can know God and how God wants to know us and what God wants to do in our lives. Um, but there's, there's a more narrowed term or a more specific term about what Romans is focusing on uh, when we talk about theology. And that word might be a new word for you, is soteriology. Let's say that together. Soteriology. Now, soter, soter is uh, the Greek word for salvation. So if you read the Greek New Testament, I'm sure you do this every night before you go to bed. Uh, uh, if, when you see the word soter, uh, that is when somebody gets saved or when somebody is healed. The same word Jesus used for healing people is also used for saving people. It's, it's the word to, me, to be made whole, uh, to be made spiritually well. Uh, so soteriology is uh, a fancy word for study of salvation. Soter, salvation, ology is study of. Uh, so theology, study of God. Soteriology is the study of salvation. So Romans really is the book on salvation. You could almost subtitle Romans as soteriology 101, that if you wanted to have an entry-level class on what it means to, or what salvation means, uh, why we need to get saved, what it means to be saved, and how we can get saved, and all the different uh, avenues uh, and, and lanes under salvation, uh, Romans is that book. And in Romans, uh, Paul defines why we need to be saved. He defines in details how we can be saved. And then he goes on to talk about what salvation does for us. So if you wanna know what salvation is all about, why we need it, how we get it and what to do with it, or what it does with us, Romans is your book. You've heard of the, the phrase Romans Road, the Romans Road of Salvation. 
Romans tells you how, why you need it, how to get it, and what to do with it. So it, it's a literally a road uh, where we came from, how we get to where we want to go, and, and, and where to go now that we have found Jesus. So uh, Romans is the book of, of salvation. So as a Christian, uh, it, it, you, know, every, you should study the whole Bible, you should learn the whole Bible, but if you want to know the basic, basics for being a Christian, uh, Romans is your book. So I, I encourage people to read it. You know, you should read the whole Bible as much as you can. Maybe you read it once a year. Maybe you read it twice a year, three times a year, if you're really in deep. Maybe you read it every few years, which is fine. You should read it at your own pace. But if you want to pick a book and study it at least once a year, Romans should be on that list because it reminds us why we need Jesus, how to get Jesus, and what to do once we have Jesus. So I don't think there's any more important things than, than those, right? Um, Romans 1 through 8, we spent a whole couple months on that section. 1 through 8 uh, took us from condemnation to justification to unification. We went from condemned in sin, justified by faith, and united with Jesus and united to Jesus. So we came from lost to found to united. That is the uh, uh, progression of the book of Romans from lost to found to united. And there is going to be uh, some, a whole section on sanctification. So lost, found, united, and growing. Romans 12 through 16 is all about sanctification, what it means to be sanctified or made holy. Once we are one with Jesus, what do we do now? Or what happens then? We grow with Jesus. We grow in Jesus. That's Romans 12, but between Romans 8 and 12, naturally are Romans 9, 10, and 11. I think that's how math works. Um, Romans 12 is going to teach us about sanctification, but until then, we, we, we called Romans 9, 10, and 11 footnote chapters. And what I mean by that is, uh, really, you could skip from Romans 8 to 12, and you wouldn't really miss anything, uh, because Romans 8 tells us we are one with Christ. Romans 12 says, now that we are one with Christ, what should we do now, or how should we grow? Uh, 9, 10, and 11, um, I would almost say, if you're reading the book, just to try to get the basic information of it, I would say read Romans 1 through 8, skip to 12, read to the end, then go back, read 9, 10, and 11. Now, you can read it in order. That's fine too. We're studying in order. But my point is that Romans 9, 10, and 11 are a little bit deeper than the rest. Uh, they're a little bit more, uh, a little bit more heavy. Uh, they're a little bit more, um, let's say, uh, kind of higher level or upper level. That, that They kind of require a little bit more um, a focus and uh, not, and, and you all are here on a Wednesday night, so you're the prime candidates for this sort of level. Uh, but you know, in college, there are 100 classes and 200 classes, and then there's 400 classes. Um, Romans 9, 10, 11 are the 400. They're the, they're the higher level. Uh, you know, they're, they're the ones that where you go in the room and everybody's got a beard and wearing glasses and they're all sitting around and nobody talks to each other. Um, and and, and I, I couldn't grow a beard so that I, I was one of those people, but I don't have any facial hair. But I, people would walk into class and, and you would just assume that no one wanted to talk to you because you're just in there to get all the knowledge that you can. Um, uh, th thankfully, y'all aren't like those people because those people are boring and, 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 hard, and they usually become preachers. Um, y'all are better off than, than people like me, right? Um, but uh, again, Romans 9, 10, 11, they're, they're really deep chapters, but we got through chapter nine last week, didn't we? And it might've been a little bit a little bit more than what we have covered so far in terms of uh, what it required us to, to think about and, and, and think, you know, kind of give our mind to. But I think we learned a lot. Um, so Romans 9, Romans 9 uh, begins with Paul going into detail about God 
keeping his promise to Israel. So you're reading through Romans 1 through 8. It's all about salvation, how we are, we are we're saved through Jesus. And then you get chapter 9, and Paul starts talking about Israel. And it's like, well, why are you, what are you doing, Paul? And what he does specifically is he says, remember how I just taught you about adoption and about election and about unconditional love and I, how I just told you that in Christ you were adopted as God's children and how in Christ you are elected to the uh, family of God. You are the elect. Remember how I just told you that God loves you unconditionally? All those things were originally and initially exclusive to the Jews. And as he's talking about how everybody now has access to those promises, Paul gets a little bit sentimental because he was a Jew and he gets a little sentimental for the Jewish people who had originally been given those promises but rejected Jesus. And of course, that was part of God's plan. They rejected him. The Gentiles were brought in. But Paul gets a little bit emotional and he says, I wish that I could be cursed for my Jewish brothers and sisters so that they wouldn't miss what was originally given to them. But then he makes it very clear that God still has a plan for Israel. And we, all these years later, can obviously attest to that because Israel didn't exist for 2,000 years and comes back on the map through supernatural circumstances. We clearly know God has a plan for Israel. And, but back, in, back when Paul was writing this book, uh, Israel had rejected Jesus. Rome was threatening to destroy the nation. And they did about 30 years later, 25 years later after Paul wrote this book, Israel was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The people were dispersed and, and, and sent around the world. So the Jewish people, Paul was burdened for them because of what they had went through. But he makes it very clear in Romans 9 that God was not done with Israel. And the reason why he wants us to know this is because if he has just told us that God's going to be faithful to us, he wanted to make it, make it clear to us that God has not given, God has not let down, let Israel down. God has not broken his promises to Israel. So, because you might would think that if the Old Testament says God's going to make a promise to Israel and then God says, okay, I'm not going to do that, then how trustworthy are God's promises to us in the New Testament? So, Paul's want to make it clear that even though Israel has rejected Jesus as a whole, God's not going to reject the nation of Israel and God's not done with Israel. So, that's how Paul gets us into this kind of deeper, kind of sidestep chapter. Firstly, to make it clear that God will be faithful to the Abrahamic covenant. So remember last week we talked about the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is the law, the 10 commandments, the, sal the, the salvation by works. That was replaced with Jesus. He died for our sins. He saves us by faith. But God made a promise to Abraham that the Jewish people, the Jewish nation would be blessed and that God would use Israel as a means of changing the world, of saving the world. And Paul says in Romans 9, God is going to keep that promise. Not all the Jews are going to be saved. Not all the Jews are going to keep their promise to God, but God's not going to break his promise to Israel. And you can pay attention to it throughout history. God's going to keep his promise. And we obviously see that he has, and he's going to keep doing that. But then Paul goes on and says, the reason why I'm telling you this, Christians, is because I want you to know that as God chose Israel to be his vessel that he would work in the world and make a difference in the world, God made a choice for Israel, knowing that some of them would not choose him, knowing that some of them would reject him, yet God was not surprised. And God knew those that would and those that wouldn't choose him. And 
He says to us as Christians in Romans 9 that God has made the same choice for us. So what Paul really gets into in Romans 9 is the idea of God's sovereignty, that God is sovereign in his choosing those that come to him, that God is not surprised when people reject him. God is not surprised when people come to him. Nobody stumbles their way to God. God makes a choice. And he did not make a temporary choice for Israel. He made an eternal choice for Israel. And in the same way, God has made a choice for us that he is committed to us to bring us to him. And and that really opens our minds up to the nature of salvation. And we begin to, and hopefully last week, you, you began to see that salvation is something that God is the author of. And that salvation is something that nobody just backs their way into, that it's God who leads us to salvation. Do you see the point there? That God is sovereign over those that are saved. God is not in heaven wishing and hoping people to believe. He is choosing people. God is choosing people. And with his choice comes a genuine and undeniable conversion. So the the rhetoric was, well, why, if some of the Jews did not believe, does that mean that God was somehow unsuccessful? And Paul says, no, God chose Abraham. God chose Isaac. God chose Jacob. God chose Judah. God chose people. And that meant some did not receive him. Some did not accept him. But those that God chose, they were genuinely and undeniably saved. So you see what Paul is trying to get us to understand here? He's not trying to make us arrogant. Oh, well, God picked me. I guess I'm better than somebody else. He's saying, no, God picked you. God chose you. That should make us feel so, so humble, be so humble and, and, and such admiration of God that we would be chosen in spite of all the stuff working against us, right? That God chose us even though we had nothing in us that made us desirable. Those that God chooses unquestionably come to him. So Romans 9 is about making us have confidence in the God who chooses and that we might have, be full of confidence in God's plans for the world. Jesus kind of made it clear to us in his, in his life Jesus said this in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Do you see that the the emphasis on him choosing all that God gives me will come. Whoever comes, I will not cast out. So this is not, this makes salvation a, 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 a lot more of a definite thing, right? That God chooses and those that God choose, they will Come, they will not be cast out. John 10, Jesus said this, all that the Father gives me, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's or out of the Father's hands. So again, we have this emphasis on God's sovereignty, God's choice. When God chooses someone, he saves them and he keeps them. So Paul wants us to be comforted by the reminder of God's sovereignty. He did not fail with Israel. Those he chose came to him. He led them to Jesus even. And since Jesus died uh, and rose again, he has continued to choose people, leading people 
to saving faith. Paul says that there is no concern over God's promises to Israel being fulfilled because God does not miss and God does not mess up. God will finish what he started and those he chooses will come to him, Jew or Gentile. So basically, Paul's sidestep about Israel remaining part of God's plan allowed him to explain how any of us get into God's plan through a choice that God makes. How did you get here? God chose you. God drew you in. God opened the door for you. God made the way for you. God took you by the hand and drug you if that was necessary. Last week, we unpacked all this and more concerning the nature of salvation. And of course, when we talk about salvation, we should always start with God because that's where it comes from. Now, this may cause some people to wonder, and maybe not you, but maybe some people would hear this message and say, is salvation a passive transaction then? I mean, if this is all God, 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 I mean, does that mean that somebody, that we don't have a choice in the matter? We don't have a responsibility in the matter? Now, I kept telling you last week, come back next week, come back next week, because there's, a, there's another side of the coin. God is the one choosing, but we do have a role to play. And that's what makes Romans 10 the perfect complement to Romans 9. Romans 9 is about God's sovereign choice, but Romans 10 is about human responsibility. Now you might think, well, these things are incongruous. These things don't go together. They're opposites, but actually they go hand in hand. I heard a preacher say one time, I don't know who, this, who originally told this or I would credit them, I heard a preacher say one time that uh, there are those that go to heaven. There were those that when we get to heaven, some will believe they got there because God chose them and they had no, they, had, they did nothing but just were along for the ride. And there are some that will get to heaven and say, I made the choice and, and it was up to me. And if I hadn't made the choice, then I wouldn't be here. And if you walk through the door and you think that sovereignty was over the door or free will was over the door, on the other side of the door would be the opposite because they are two sides of the same coin. God makes a choice, but we also have to make a choice. And that's why there's two sides to the coin. From God's perspective, he's doing all the work. But from our perspective, we absolutely have a choice or choices to make. Now, you're probably familiar with the different schools of thought that, uh, uh, that when it comes to salvation, people often refer to, uh, there are categories that man has made up with and people have made up with uh, that uh, kind of help make help differentiate the different views of salvation. And I promise you, I'm not going to put you to sleep. I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go into detail, but I am going to show you uh, that you've probably heard that there are two concentrations when it comes to salvation. There are some that say that believe in the idea of Calvinism, which is God makes a choice. You're predestined. You don't have a dog in the fight. Uh, and there are some that call themselves Arminianists uh, or Arminianism, uh, which is all about free will, all about human responsibility. And, and, and there are people who are all the way on the extreme ends of these two, uh, of these two belief systems. Um, now, John Calvin and, and, a, and a guy named Joseph Arminian, uh, they were leaders in the Reformed age and their followers attached their name to their teaching and they kind of made the, the, the teaching all about them and, and these men wouldn't have ever wanted that and these men were not as extreme as their followers made their beliefs to be uh, because there are some people that say, you're either one or the other and, and I don't think that's really the case because I believe they're both sides of the same coin. 
Um, but Calvinism is often associated with the idea of predestination, Arminianism, the idea of free will. And some people who believe in free will believe in the ability to not believe in not only that you have to choose, uh, it's all on you to choose, but it's also on you to keep up with God and, and you might fall away. So you've probably heard of the different extremes there. Um, now, these ideas predated these men, but they just got condensed under these two men's names. Um, now, classically and traditionally, uh, Presbyterians, Lutherans are in the Calvin camp, uh, and then uh, Methodists, Holiness, Pentecostals, they're in the Arminian camp. Uh, and, and you say, what about Baptists? Well, the Baptists have been split since we started. Um, and uh, since the 1600s, uh, as soon as there, became, there was a Baptist church, there were two of them because they split immediately. There were the, I'm not joking, there were the particular Baptists and the general Baptists. Uh, uh, the particular Baptists were very particular, which is most of us. Um, uh, <laughs> the particular Baptists believed they were Calvinists. The general Baptists were Arminianists. Uh, the particular Baptists believed in a limited atonement. The general Baptists believed in an unlimited atonement. Now, if you were here last week, uh, you'll know that the idea of predestination, uh, the idea that God chooses and that God knows in advance, that is very biblical. That is very biblical, nothing controversial about that. God knows ahead of time the decisions that we're going to make and God has made a choice ahead of time. Does it make him uh, less good? Does it make him uh, you know, any less God? God makes the choice and, and he's, good. He's, he's capable of doing that and, and nobody can question that. Um, Peter says this to his uh, followers, Peter, an apostle of Jesus, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So God knows in advance. That shouldn't be really too hard to put our minds around or our arms around. God is pretty smart. He knows ahead of time what people are gonna do. Um, Ephesians chapter one, Paul says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us for adoption. So God knows and God chooses. Tonight, we're gonna learn that, that this is not contradicted when we talk about human responsibility and free will. Because yes, God knows and yes, God chooses, but also we have a response to give. We have a choice to make. But let me say this real quickly. Limited atonement, which is often associated with Calvinism and predestination. Limited atonement is not biblical. Predestination is biblical. God knows in advance. But people that go so far to say that Jesus only died for a certain group of people, that is not biblical. That is as far from biblical as you can get. So if you ever hear somebody say, well, you talk about limited atonement and that Jesus didn't die for everybody, that is as unbiblical as a lot of other, uh, you know, terrible, heinous things. John the Baptist said this when he saw Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just of the church, the world. John, the apostle, would write this, that Jesus is the propitiation or the atonement for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. So what does that mean? That means that Jesus paid the price for all sin, the sins of those that would believe and the sins of those that wouldn't believe. He died for everybody. So if somebody goes to hell, they don't go because their sins were not atoned for. They go because they did not believe in the one who atoned for their sins. Is that clear? 
Unlimited atonement is the only doctrine of atonement the Bible teaches. Limited atonement is unbiblical. It is not acceptable. Jesus died and forget, died for all sins. You say, well, why would Jesus die for people that, didn't, that wouldn't believe in him? Why would he give his blood up for people that would not believe in him? Because he loves them, right? Because he loves them. And because he satisfied God's perfect law for every imperfect sinner. I know there's a lot. We're not gonna spend too much time going through the, the text, but I wanted to get all that up front because I want that to be very clear. What's very much clear to in Romans 10 though, is that this provision that God has made for us must be personal. And it must be something that we put personal faith in. Look at Romans 10 verse one. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. So he just went on and on about God's choice, but Paul has not given up on Israel. So when you, when you think about somebody that isn't responding to God, has rejected God, Paul, you can take, I'm not telling you to change the Bible, but you can replace Israel with that person's name. Because if God, if Paul just told us in Romans 9 that God's not surprised that those that believe and God made a choice and those that choose and those that don't choose, God already knows. For Paul to then still say in verse 1 of chapter 10, I'm still praying for them, that should tell you all you need to know about how you should, treat people, how you should respond to people that reject Jesus. You still pray for them. Because God may have made a choice, but you don't know what his choice is. And we live from the disposition that God has provided salvation for everyone. So we're gonna pray for them to be saved. Does that make sense? When we get to heaven, God's not gonna, God is not gonna be in the wrong. God's not gonna be in some, in some position, well, oh, he didn't give them a chance. He knows and he made a right and sovereign choice. But our response is we still pray for them and we still love them. And look at verse number two. He makes it clear, verse two and three make it clear that for it to be applied to us, there's got to be a personal response. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So what is, Paul's, what is Paul, uh, his issue with the Jewish people or with the Jewish, uh, the religious people? They have not, they don't have possession of personal knowledge and personal submission. That is the litmus test for salvation, that there is personal knowledge and there is personal submission. If there is not personal knowledge and there is not personal submission, there is no personal salvation. Now I bring that up because if we're saved, we're gonna know how we got saved, why we got saved and what we are saved for. Is that, is that clear? Nobody gets saved and then sits on their hands and say, well, I don't know what I'm here for. There's a personal knowledge and a personal submission. There's no such thing as ignorant salvation. See how he says they're ignorant, they don't know. But there's a lot of Christians, I think, that just act like they don't know. Well, I got saved because somebody told me to raise my hand and pray a prayer. That means you don't know what you actually prayed. And if you don't know what you actually prayed, that tells me you didn't really pray for anything. Is that too far? Or is that in line? Now, this goes for those who base their salvation on something that was done to them when they were too young to even know what was being done. Let me touch on that for a minute. 
there is such thing as churches that have adopted covenant theology. And this is why, and I don't mean this to be harsh toward people that were brought up in these traditions, but this is why there are some traditions that baptize infants because they connect the Old Testament circumcision with baptism. In the Old Testament, Jewish babies were circumcised, boys were circumcised as a sign of the covenant, as a sign of the promise of God. So some well-intended Christians back a long, long time ago thought, well, if kids are born in the church, they're born into the covenant, and they tried to force Israel, the church's ideal, into Israel's template, and it did not go well. So there's people who baptize infants because they're, they're thinking, okay, they circumcise baby Jews. We're, we're baptizing baby, baby church members. So that's giving them the covenant, but th- that's not how it works, right? And, and again, I'm not being mean. I'm, you know, that, that's, if, you, if, you, if it was done for a ceremony, that's fine. But if, if that's taught that that saves people, that's not biblical. And tragically, there's a lot of people who base their salvation on something they don't even remember, Right? Now, if you made a decision later on and, and you still cherish that event from your infancy that you don't remember, you know, that's fine, but that's not salvation. But a lot of people, unfortunately, mistake that for salvation. Now, there's also, there's also people who um, were, I mean, how can I be nice? Who their parents and their grandparents kind of made them go through some motion when they were children. Pray this prayer. Go down to the altar. You're eight, you're 12, it's time. And those people, those kids did not know what they were doing. I've had people bring kids to me at the altar and say, tell them how to get saved and, and I'll, do, I'll do it and I'll pray with them. But I, that's not how it works. God saves people and God gives people personal knowledge and personal submission and personal surrender. You let God be God, you can't force it because here's the thing. A lot of those people that had those experiences, they have to be reminded about that experience because they don't remember it because it wasn't personal. If somebody has to be reminded of their salvation experience or their conversion experience, it probably wasn't their experience. And again, I know that's kind of rough, but that's the truth. And that's why a lot of people grow up deceived and lost because they didn't actually have personal knowledge and make personal submission. It's our knowledge, it's our submission. Verse four, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So what's the, what's the emphasis? Those who believe. The promise is that Christ has died for everybody. He's provided salvation for everybody. His death fulfilled the law of God. His death provided the righteousness of God for everyone who believes. Who believes? So his death was unlimited with its provision, but our belief activates our benefits. You were written in his will. Your name's in his will. But if you don't act on that, you'll never get the benefits of it. Nobody's gonna get to heaven and say, well, and Jesus is gonna show them, I think he's gonna show everybody, hey, you see who I died for? I died for everybody. When somebody's the great white throne judgment, when people are going to hell, they're not gonna go to hell because Jesus didn't die for them. People go to hell because they don't believe that Jesus died for them. So so this brings us back to the idea of God's choice. 
Who has God chosen? From the cross, he calls everyone. And on the cross, he chose us. The difference in being called and being chosen is discovered when you get to the cross and you make it personal. We have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to accept what God has provided for us. We have the freedom to believe it or reject it. Now, to wrap it all up, verse five through 13. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead as, in it, as if it's a, a work that we have to do to make a difference in the grand scheme of things. Because we didn't bring Christ down. We didn't go up and we didn't bring him back up. He did that on his own. He did not need our help. But what does it say? The word is near, your, is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. In verse 9 through 13 are some, again, some of the most important verses you could ever read and memorize. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will, you will, you will be saved. For the heart, from the heart, one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. The same Lord over all is rich to all who, what's the word? Call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So a couple things here. We have the freedom to choose, but only our wills, only after our wills are liberated by the work that God has done. Jesus came to save us. He died to save us. He has initiated the process. We need God to draw us in before we'll ever get close to him. But good news is Jesus has already come close to us and his Holy Spirit has been put in motion since his resurrection to draw us to him. We don't have to wait on it. He's doing it right now. He's doing it all of the time and he uses certain things to draw certain people in, but he's always in that business right now. When God convicts us and draws us, there is an act of submission on our part that is required. Nine through 13 breaks it down. Notice though, verse nine it's phrased a little bit different, I think. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, I mean, shouldn't believe come before confession? I wanna show you that because in the very next verse, verse 10, Paul says, believe, then confess. But in verse nine, he, he gets our attention. He jars us a little bit by, making, by saying confess before believe. He wants us to know that if we believe a confession is very soon going to follow. Does it make sense? Yes, you believe first, because if you don't believe, you won't confess. But what is Paul saying in verse nine? That if you have believed, it's as much as confess because you will not believe in silence or in privacy. Salvation is not a private matter. It will be evident. Now, not everybody's loud. Not everybody is of the same character or the same demeanor. But if we have believed, we will confess. 
Didn't Jesus say that? If you are, if you confess me before man, I'll confess you before my father in heaven. But if you don't confess me, then that must mean you haven't really believed in me. So notice the emphasis on our responsibility to believe and confess. And if we have believed, we will confess. But if we do not confess, we probably have not believed. Our responsibility is not just in what we say to God, but what we say to others. That's the difference between private religion and personal salvation. If God chooses us and we respond to him, we will confess what we believe from the story we tell, the posture we take, the lives we live. Think about the people that Jesus saved in his ministry. What did they do as soon as they left his presence? They told everybody, right? They believed and they confessed. And he tried to tell them not to confess, but they couldn't help it, right? Because if you believe, you will confess. And people that don't have a desire to confess, I question whether or not they have believed. And again, this doesn't mean you have to have a bumper sticker. You have to go on Facebook and say what you got to say. You don't have to be loud in a grocery store and say, hey, I love Jesus. You, should do, you can do that. That's fine. If you want to be loud, somebody might take you outside or something, but do it all you want to. But the life you live will be evident that you have confessed Jesus. If it takes years for somebody to finally know that you're a Christian, hey, I don't really know about that, right? I mean, I don't really think that's confession. I know it isn't. We will make public confession. And, and, that's, and again, that's why church is important. If we can't, I say this in our small groups, but if we can't confess out loud in church that we love Jesus, how in the world are we gonna confess out loud out there? If we can't confess out loud when the Holy Spirit is moving and we're singing and we're worshiping, how in the world are we going to do it out there where the Holy Spirit is fighting against all the devil's spirits? Something to think about. That's why you should sing. That's why you should sing out loud because that's part of your confession. Think about this. Jesus made a public choice for you, didn't he? I mean, let, let's get graphic here. He was stripped down naked, nailed to a cross to choose you. Punished by man and by God. All to make a public choice for you. People say, well, you don't got to go down and make a public confession. Really? Oh, I don't have to do it. I, you know, I'm a silent witness. Really? He made a public choice for you. Listen, I'm as an introvert as you can get. But personalities will not keep you from making that public confession of Jesus. If he's in you, he'll come out of you. He'll make a difference through you. Notice the caveat there that God raised him from the dead. What is that? Why is that distinction there? It's because the resurrection is where the power comes from. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you will not... Though you die, you'll live. So if we believe in God, that Jesus is God's son, that he rose again, that's where our life comes from. That's where the difference is made. That's what verse 11 uh, speaks of. Whoever believes will not, be, will not be put to shame as in there's not that there's evidence of it. And when you put faith in Jesus, he shows up. That you're not disappointed. Have you ever bought something and it comes in the mail and you're thinking, well, that's not what I bought. Go on Amazon and buy something that's just got a little stock picture there and it comes in the mail and you open it up and think, I don't know about that. I didn't buy that or that's not what the shirt looked like. You're kind of disappointed in your purchase. You'll never be disappointed in what you get from Jesus. He makes a difference. 
Verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That word call means cry out, call out. When we cry out to God, our cry to God will never be ignored. When you cry out to God, God hears you. He will never forsake a cry to his name. But this also informs our mission that if we go and preach this message, God is not gonna say over someone, oh, I didn't choose them. The cross makes it clear that God chooses, he loves, and he's made a way for everyone. The question is, what will our choice be? If we have chosen him, we will confess him. But verse 14 through 17 makes it clear that there's something else we gotta do. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are those of the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So here's what Paul says to those of us who have called on Jesus and confessed Jesus. We are called to go and preach Jesus. That's part of our confession. God's made a choice known. His spirit works through his word to open ears, eyes, and hearts. But we who have been saved have an obligation to go and spread the good news. People say, Justin, I don't have anybody to spread the good news to. I don't know anybody. I don't get around people. I, you know, I, I, hear, I hear you. But, but after this week, have, do we need to be reminded? Have, haven't we been reminded there are plenty of people that need to hear? And there are many waiting to hear. I don't know who to tell. Well, that's code for I don't really know. I don't really want to inconvenience myself. I'm preaching to me there. Jesus told that parable we looked at the other night. Go to the streets and lanes and bring in the people. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the people that can't get here, bring them in. He says in verse 23, go to the highways and hedges and compel people. How compelled are you to go and compel people? At the end of that chapter, Paul says, Israel has not believed, but nonetheless, I still go out and compel them. As we look out to a world that has rejected again and again, what should our response be? Our response should be believe and confess louder and louder every time with every day. That is our responsibility. We have a responsibility to take personal knowledge and make a personal submission to Jesus and his gospel and let our faith lead us and make our faith known around us every single day. Believe and confess, believe and confess. So four things for you. Call on him for salvation. Well, I've done that, we'll check that box. Call on him in submission every day, submit to him. Call on his name, you will not be disappointed. Call on his name, he will raise you up new. Call out for them in intercession and call out to them with invitation. That is our responsibility as saved people and for those that are not yet saved people. Church, thank you for being with 
us tonight. Thank you for hearing this word. If you've heard this word, you've responded to this word, believe it, confess it, go out and proclaim it. Our world desperately needs to hear it. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this night. Thank you for these church members. Thank you for bringing them out tonight. May you bless each and every one of them. Use them for your glory. Lord, that we would believe with our mouths and confess, believe in our hearts, confess with our mouth and proclaim with our lives that Jesus is Lord and he has invited everyone to come to him. May we be messengers of his good news to a lost and dying world. We ask this in Jesus' name.